Hopefully I don't speak any heresy. (laughs) I'm thankful that the word of God confirms itself. And so um, when you're preaching the word, it, it confirms itself. It speaks to our hearts. And I'm thankful for that. Um, last week, Pastor Jim talked to us. Uh, we've been speaking out of Ephesians. He talked to us about um, being moved from death to life. That we were dead in our transgressions. And dead is, you know, I mean, dead is dead. It's not just that we were ailing. You know, we were completely, completely dead. And God raised us up in new life. Amen? He spoke on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that portion of scripture. This morning I'll be speaking on the rest of the chapter, 11 through 22. And um, an old pastor friend of ours says, Biblical preaching does not seek to say something new, but to say something true in a new way. So that's my desire this morning. Um, Let's go ahead and read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So therefore, this is building on everything we talked about last week. The Pastor Jim shared with us about moving from death to life, being totally transplanted. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God in the world. We were without hope and without God in this world. In this world. This world is a mess. Can you imagine being without hope, without God? That was our condition. Verse 14. Oh, 13. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. After reading that, you hardly have to preach. (laughs) I mean, that just speaks for itself. Um... The title of the sermon this morning is One People, One Temple. And the end result that we're going for, or that actually God's going for, is in verse 21, that in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple 
in the Lord. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning is those two aspects. The whole building is joined together and we become a holy temple. So in verses 11 through 18, um, Paul is talking about an issue that was happening actually before people were getting saved and even after people were coming to Christ, which was the separation of Jew and Gentile. Um, I'm going to ask for three volunteers quickly. Ben Clark, I'm calling you out. Go ahead, Elizabeth. Sure, come on up, Julie. Thank you. Okay, so in this scenario, we are going to pretend like Ben is God. Come over here, honey. <laughs> I live with him. Trust me, he's not. Um, <laughs> I know it's not very nice. So, okay, here's God. We're going to do a quick visual about um, what's near and what, what's far. Um, in today's terms, we would talk about circumcised versus uncircumcised. The Jews were circumcised. They were God's chosen people, right? So here, Elizabeth, you're going to be a chosen person. Here we go. You can just stand right here. And Julie, why don't you come over here? Just stand right here. Okay, just right there is good. So here's Elizabeth. She is a Jew. She's one of God's chosen people, and therefore she is near to God, right? Here's Julie. Oh, man, she's a Gentile. This is really hard for her because she is not one of God's chosen people. She is far from God. In today's world, we might equate this. Now, we're not Jews here. I think we have one maybe who's an actual descendant. Thank God for her. But we, most of us are not. And so most of us were way over there. But in today's terms, we would say maybe circumcised versus uncircumcised. We would maybe call it the mostly holy versus the less holy, right? Someone who's chosen or called versus someone who's just not chosen or not called, right? Someone who's really close to God, who just reads their Bible all the time, right? I was joking with Brenda this morning. I need the pulpit because my Bible is so thick. Um, But... We have some of those things in our mind, don't we? Those barriers, the differentiation between those who are closer to God and those who are further from God. And that's what was happening in the church. And so they were saying, here's what Paul is saying. Look, you who are far and you who are near were called. The truth is, Elizabeth is near to God and Julie is not near to God, but neither one was able to come to God right? Neither the near nor the far was able to be united with God. And so what was happening was that the near ones were saying, hey, you know what? We're closer to God. We're over here. We're the chosen ones, right? And at least we're close to God. And the one over there is probably going, well, maybe you're close to God, but you're not living like it, right? (laughs) These are some of the things that we think about in our lives. But the truth is, nobody could actually come to God. Thanks, guys. You can sit down. I was going to do a Grover illustration. Near? Far! Right? <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Grover's the best. God called and gave peace to the near and far through Jesus' sacrifice and the gift of his spirit. Right? So God was here and he said, hey, come here. Oh, hey, you, come here, right? He's called to the near and the far. 
um, Ephesians 2, 15 to 18, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. See, there was tension here between the near and the far. And when Jesus called them, the far had to run maybe a little further, (laughs) but the near had to run too, and they met at the gateway. Right? They met at the gateway. Nobody was getting in without Jesus. We become united in the way that we approach the Father. We all have to go through Christ. Because of Christ, we are all on a level playing field. And that produces unity, right? In fact, all the barriers were gone. All the barriers were taken away, which was unheard of, right? Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, right? In our world today, we can see there's neither holy or unholy. There's neither he who's closer to God versus him who's farther away, right? Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're all one. We all came to him. So this produces unity in us. When we are able to meet in the middle, we're kinder to one another. Don't you think? The attitude of I need grace just as much as you need grace puts an end to hostility and division. Now this happens in the church sometimes, right? Some of us, the word says we think of ourselves higher than we ought, right? Um, but this also can happen in the world. I have a friend who, um, she's a believer, and she works in a secular workplace, and, you know, she's always trying to be a witness, um, but there's something that she cannot abide, and it's meeting or talking with anyone who's living a homosexual lifestyle. To her, that is the line, right? If you're living that lifestyle... I'm disgusted by you. I can't even deal with you. Lord knows I'm not going to preach with you. It's like that is, that's it. That is her dividing line, right? But are we to live in hostility, much less with each other, but with the world? Maybe that person is far away. They're totally far away. They're living in sin. That barrier hasn't even begun to be broken down. But Jesus came to call those who are near and those who are far We should not be living a life of hostility, definitely toward one another, and definitely not toward the world. That was not Christ's attitude. And if we're going to build our lives on him, that's the way we need to live. C.S. Lewis said in The Four Loves, friendship is born at that moment when one man says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. We can be genuine with one another. And if we come with an attitude that, hey, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, let's meet at the cross of Christ. Let's come to God together. You too? Oh, you yell at your kids every once in a while? I thought I was the only one. (laughs) Right? You argue with your spouse sometimes. You struggle in your workplace. I thought I was the only one. You seem so near to God. 
I seem so far from God. Let's meet at the cross. It builds unity. Let's be genuine with one another. And unity is so important to God. It's so important to him. He commands his blessing where unity is. He hates division. Division is the work of the enemy. Let's choose to align ourselves with God's purpose to call the near and the far to himself rather than align ourselves with hostility. Hostility is a strong word. Let's not do it. So that is becoming one people. The next uh, few verses from 19 to 22 talk about becoming one temple. Let's read it. Consequently, okay, so now that we're all one people and we're over it, right? We're going to be united. We're going to love one another. Recognize we all need grace, right? Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together. We're not going to be a whole building unless we're united. We need to be together. It's joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. He um, references this whole new system, which goes back to verse 15, where he talks about that in his flesh, he abolished the law and commandments. His purpose was to create himself one new man out of the two. There's no longer Jew. There's no longer Gentile. There's a brand new, never seen before person here, a new species. And we are members of God's household with full inheritance rights. What does that mean? That means that God is here, right? Ben was standing here. And he says, hey, you who are near, come. Hey, you who are far, come. And we meet together before God's presence. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say, thanks for coming to the door. Nice to see you. He says, come in. Come in. Come into my house. Be a member of my house. Be my children. Inherit what I have for you. Romans 8, 16 to 17, familiar scripture. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Do you know you're God's child this morning? Are you God's child? Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We inherit, you guys, we inherit salvation. We inherit joy. We inherit peace. We inherit the glory of God. But the very, very best part, oh, I pushed the back one is that we inherit God. We inherit himself. He gives himself to us. Not just all his benefits, but himself. He enters into a relationship and a covenant with us that's impossible on our own, but we inherit it through Christ. What an amazing truth. We had nothing to do with God. We certainly were not his children. We weren't part of his family. But he said, come, become a member of my household. But then something weird happens, at least in my mind, um, in the scripture. He goes from a family picture, right, 
He goes from a family picture to a structure picture. He moves from something that I understand better, I'm more relational, talking about a family and how we relate that way to talking about a temple. And in my mind, um, I don't quite equate the two. The temple just, it's structural. It seems um, sort of a lofty idea where with a family, you can kind of get your head around it. For me, when you're talking about a temple, it's harder to kind of get a picture for what, what he's talking about. So I want to go to um, John 2, 13 to 25. And we'll read it together. Jesus spent a lot of time around the temple Um, as a child. He was preaching there, right? Mary was a little upset with him. But he hung out around the temple a lot. But this is um, a well-known passage of something that happened at the temple. And I believe um, that it's a prophetic picture of what God was doing in shifting the old temple system to the new temple system. And this is what God is talking about here. Let's read it. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So, naturally, he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Very unhappy with what he's seeing in the temple, right? Very unhappy. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. I mean, there was some zeal happening, right? He, he was not just like, man, this stinks. I do not like what's happening in this house right now. This is not God's will. No, he's infuriated. He says, get this out of here. This is not the purpose for the temple of God. So much so that he gets, you know, kind of violent, honestly. He, he just turns everything off. So they're thinking of that scripture. Oh, yeah, the zeal for his house must be consuming, right? 18, then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Translation, who do you think you are? Right? What are you doing? We've been doing this forever. You just come in and tear everything up? Who, who are you? Show us a miraculous sign. Jesus answered them, listen to this. This is the miraculous sign he's giving them. Oh, this is so good. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They didn't understand. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But he wasn't talking about the literal temple, was he? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And he was raised, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. I'm going to stop there. I believe this is a prophetic picture of what God was doing to change the whole temple system, right? Clearly he shows up. He sees all this going on at the temple. It's not working, right? The original purpose for the temple was for people to come and meet with God. That wasn't really happening. Things were going on there that should not have been going on there, and he got really angry about it. 
And I believe when they said, who are you? What miraculous sign are you going to show us? He said, destroy this temple and I will build a new one. I believe that he was saying, I am going to build a whole new system. I am going, this is not working, right? He didn't literally tear down the temple, okay? Although when he died, the veil was torn as a picture of God uniting us with him. But he didn't tear down the temple. When he said that, he said, I'm going to die. I'm going to come back to life in my body. And I'm going to build something in my church. I'm going to build a new temple. And I believe that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2. That we are to be built as a new temple. So it's still... Oh, God, got there. Okay. It's still um, something that I sort of still have a hard time grasping. Okay, God, you're going to build a new temple. You're going to replace this system that wasn't working. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we have to understand what the temple was, the function that it served, to understand what it means to be a new temple, right? Ephesians, the whole series is um, a new way, right? So I believe that the Lord was establishing a new way to do the temple, Right? So let's look at what the temple was. First of all, it was God's dwelling. It was his house where he's comfortable enough to rest his holy presence. You ever get home after a hard day? Um, we were working in the yard all day yesterday, and we came in, and we both just kicked off our shoes, and we sat on the couch and just went, <sighs> that's kind of what the temple was to God's presence. It was a place where he could come, he was comfortable, he could dwell. Now, in order for the holy God to be able to come to a place and rest his presence, it had to be really specific kind of a place, right? Royalty have really cool palaces, castles. For God's presence to come into a place, it had to be really unique and special. The old way was a physical structure which had to fit very specific criteria to be worthy of God's presence. The only place, it was the only place where someone could come and even try to be close to God. It was the only place, the nearest place we could come to him. The tabernacle, if you've ever read the way that the tabernacle was built, it was so specific. Most people, including myself most of the time, kind of skip over all that. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, that measurement, this there, got it, this material, okay. It's super specific because God's presence isn't just any presence. It has to be a special, special place. But still, and then there was the temple in Jerusalem, similar kind of thing. But still, as glorious as this dwelling was, as unique as it was tailored to God's presence, we still were very distant from him. We could only come to about here, right? The nearest we could get was near. We couldn't actually get to God. Even in the temple, people came and worshipped. They weren't able to go into the holy place. Your average guy was not able to do that. Certainly not able to go into the holy of holies where God's presence actually resided. Once a year, a priest would go in there, and it was so thick, the presence of God, and his holiness rested there so much that they had to tie a rope around the guy's ankle and he had bells around his ankle so that when he went in to offer sacrifice with the sin of the people, should he die, they would know 
because they wouldn't hear the jingling of the bells and they'd haul him out with a rope. So God was there, but we still were not close to him. The new temple, the new way is that he dwells in us and with us. That presence that was in the temple that we barely could approach is in us and with us. That is mind-blowing. Matthew 18, 20 says that where two or three are gathered together, he is there with us. There's a lot more than two or three of us here, but this is totally juxtaposed against what had happened in the old temple. When two or three are together, he's there with us. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. This is what makes it possible, you guys, for us to be God's dwelling. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He came down. He lived a life like we lived, but he was sinless, and he invited us back with him. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is a totally different thing. There's a story, um, I don't know how true it is, but it's been widely circulated that at the White House one day there was a soldier that had come up to the, to the gate and was trying to get in and have audience with the president, with John F. Kennedy, trying to have audience with him. And this little boy was kind of just hanging around there, and he said, oh, what are you doing here, mister? And, and the guy said, well, you know, I'm trying to see the president, but I can't get in. There's secret service. They, they won't let me in. And the kid said, little kid, he said, oh, come with me. So he follows this little kid, right? He gets in. He's walked. He follows this kid. He walks straight into the Oval Office. And the president is sitting there, and the soldier's going, um, uh, wait, what's happening right now? And the little boy says, Daddy, this man wants to have a word with you. That's what Jesus did for us. He walked us in. And he said, Daddy, here, these people want to be with you. Thank you, God. We can approach boldly through Jesus, whose life is in us and who is our great high priest. What else was the temple? It wasn't just God's dwelling. It was also a monument. Now, I use that word sort of. I'll explain what I mean. A monument being a visual, visual representation of God's greatness and glory. We talked about how specific the criteria had to be for him to sit there. But not only was it specific, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. There was gold inlaid. There was, you know, golden fruits of this specific number and this gorgeous wood all put together. It was very, very beautiful to behold. So that when somebody looked at it, they would say, huh, that is very beautiful. That is very great. That must be a little bit of what God looks like. Hmm. That sort of represents sort of the greatness of God and the beauty of who God is. The old way is that the beauty of the temple attempted to display how complex 
intricate and absolutely beautiful God is. Here's the thing. It fell short. As gorgeous as it was, when Solomon built his temple, he had the best of the best brought from all over the world at the time. I mean, this thing was a wonder to behold. It still did not hold a candle to the glory of God. You could kind of get a picture of how gorgeous God is, but it still was not good enough. The new way, we represent God's glory through our lives by, t- by being something that the world has never seen before. People, we're called to be God's grace in the world. We're called to be some- something that people look and say, man, that guy's a Christian? That girl's a Christian? God must be very great. God must really be real, and, and he must be really loving. What a challenge. What a calling. Philippians two fourteen to 16. <laughs> Here's a little tricky part. Do everything without complaining or arguing. I've done that already this morning. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, there's that phrase again, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Do we live in a crooked and depraved world? We do. In which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. We are called to shine. I can't think of anything more glorious than a dark night when you're looking out and you see all these beautiful stars. That's what we're called to be, a monument to God's goodness, to his greatness. We are called to be a visual representation as we live out our lives. We are called to show how great, how beautiful, how complex, how intricate, how loving, how powerful our God is. A building could never do that. We can do that because he is in us. We can do that because he is in us. We're called to be a visible, tangible, living monument to God's greatness and his glory. What else was the temple? Well, it was a call to worship. It directed our attention to God and to the fact that he deserves our worship. The temple in Jerusalem... You know, we just looked at a picture of it last night, and here's Jerusalem, and you know, you've heard the phrases, we'll go up to the house of the Lord. Jerusalem was actually set on a hill, and so if you wanted to get up there to worship God, you had to go uphill, so literally you're going up. And the crowning glory of the city of Jerusalem was the temple. Compared to the dwellings that were there, compared to the marketplace, compared to everything else that there was in the city, this thing was huge. You could not ignore it, right? You couldn't go up to Jerusalem and somebody says, you know, oh, did you see the temple? Oh, I missed it. Where, where is it? Wouldn't happen. The bigness and the greatness of the temple demands an answer to will you worship or will you not worship? You can't ignore it. The old way was that the temple was set up high and it prompted people to worship. It required a response. What are you going to do? The new way. We are set as examples. 
and our lives invite and inspire others to connect with and worship God. We are a call to worship the great I am. Our lives should draw people in. The way we live our lives should puzzle people (laughs) enough to where they're going to go, huh, what am I going to do about this, God? What am I going to do about this, Jesus? Hmm, do I worship? Do I not worship? Do I believe? Do I not believe? Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let your light so shine that they see your good deeds and there's a response. They don't just see the good deeds and go, hey, then he's a good guy, right? Wow, she's really kind. She's thoughtful toward people. They will see our good deeds and because of that, they will praise our Father in heaven. That's what we're called to be. We direct the world's attention to God in such a way that he is honored. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a tall order to be a temple of the living God. So how? How do we do this? How do we say, God, help me be a temple? First of all, we live the life that we've received in Christ, right? Verses 1 through 10, Pastor Jim shared last week, we have a brand new life. There's an interesting phrase in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him... The living stone seems like a bit of an oxymoron to me, but he's a stone. We're using a picture here, and he's alive. Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are alive. We're living stones that God is building together. You know, God is not really a fan of dead things. He's not a fan of things that look good but aren't alive. He was furious. His big beef with the Israelites was that they worshipped idols. He says several times, how can you worship them? They have eyes, they have ears, they have mouths, but they're made by men and they don't do anything. They don't see, they don't hear, they don't speak. They look like they're alive, but they are not alive. They're not. They're useless. They're worthless. They look alive, but they're not. They're not doing anything. Let's not be a building that looks good, but doesn't do anything. We're in called, we are called to engage the world around us and be eyes to see, ears to hear, and a mouth to proclaim the truth. That's what it is to be a living stone. That's what it is, to engage the world. You know, I've met people, Christians, non-Christians, who stuff happens in the world and they go, la, 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 I didn't hear that. Right? Oh, I know that's happening over in the Sudan, but, you know, I really can't get involved. I know that there are orphans everywhere, but, you know, I'm just not called to do that right now. People, we cannot close our ears, our eyes, or our mouths. We're called to be living stones 
in the place where God sets us. We can't all do everything, but we can all do something. We have to engage our world. Um, if you want to get the video ready, you guys, I'll let you know when to cue it. Another way that we do it is by working together. We've talked about unity, and I just said, we can't all do everything, right? All of us are limited in some way just by our life circumstances, but together we can do everything, right? When we work together, we can. The church is an organization in the sense that it requires some structure, right? It requires some structure. We all meet here at the same time every Sunday because we have some structure, right? But the church at its core is not meant to be an organization. Okay, the church is not an organization. It's an organism. It's a living, breathing, moving, active thing. It's alive. I... um saw a video, there's a YouTube channel called Smarter Every Day, and um, I'm going to go ahead and ask them to play a couple minutes of it just as an illustration of what I'm talking about. It's gross for those of you who don't like caterpillars. But it's fun. Try to stick with it. Is it? No. You know, stop at the same time. This is in the Amazon. Oh, that's weird rainforest. This guy found this, what he calls a macro-organism. If you look, like for a school of fish or birds, it's usually the bird or the fish in front that dictates where the whole group goes. But if you'll look at the caterpillars when they're stopping, they're doing this little stop and think little technique, you'll notice that it propagates from the back to the front sometimes. That's really strange. I wonder what kind of clock or rhythm is dictating this. I don't know. Look at it. Really weird. You never seen that? Note to self, go back and look at the video of the caterpillars and see if the ones on top are moving twice as fast as the ones on bottom or depending on how many layers up they are, if they're moving like three times as fast. So it wasn't until I got here and started playing with Legos that I realized it's not only the second and third level of caterpillars that's moving faster, it's the entire group as a whole. Okay, to demonstrate this, we're going to have a Lego drag race. You can see I've got a single caterpillar on this side and I have a whole group of caterpillars on this side. At each frame, I'm going to move the single caterpillar one click and I'm going to move the ones on bottom one click as well as the ones rolling across the top one click. Keep your eyes on the blue caterpillars. Ready, set, wiggle. So you can see from our little race here that the caterpillar that was by himself is a lot slower than the caterpillar that was in the group. Now we had two levels, so does that mean that this moved twice as fast? No, it doesn't. Do the math for me by looking at these grids and let me know in the comments how much faster. But think about this. What if we had three levels or even more? How much efficiency do the real caterpillars add every time they add a level? I think the coolest part is that they all stop at the same time. Look at that. Okay, and thank you. you. So this is something he ran across in the Amazon while he was... 
Thank you so much. Um, this is something he ran across, which was a whole bunch of caterpillars, but they were moving as one. Now, why were they doing this? Well, in the Amazon, if you're a caterpillar, you're pretty much the bottom of the food chain, right? You're not getting very far as a single caterpillar. They band together, and they move as one. So they're safer. They get further a whole lot faster. The word says, I lost my clicking. Okay, the church is an organism, not an organization. The word says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Did you know you're a caterpillar? We are to move together. And the interesting thing is they stop. They kind of listen. There's some kind of cue they're getting, and they all go together. And they stop. We're waiting. We're listening. Okay, well, we're going to go all together. And they rotate. Working together, we get further, faster, and safer. How do we do this? How can we work together? We can faithfully work at unity. Unity is work, amen? Unity is work. We can faithfully work at it, refusing to live in hostility. Just like he said, I've ripped down all the barriers of hostility. We refuse to live in hostility with each other or independence from one another. We're a lot better together, people. How else can we do this? By following Christ and the apostles. In verse 20, it talks about Christ being the cornerstone. You ever play Jenga? Game where there's lots of little wooden blocks and you build this tower and everybody has to take blocks out and the, you know, the one who takes the wrong block out and it falls, loses. Jesus is the cornerstone of this temple. If you're playing Jenga and you take your first move is to take the corner piece off the bottom, that whole thing is coming down faster than you can say Jenga. Christ is the cornerstone. We're to be built on him. We must model ourselves after Christ and align ourselves with his purposes. So who was Christ? Obviously, we know some things about him. Among other things, he was loving. He was vibrant. He, you know, you read this, he is one of the most alive people. He was not boring. He, there was no deadness in him. He was totally vibrant. He was joyful, full of truth. And here's a key, people. Totally connected to and dependent on the Father. That's what we're called to be. We can listen to our head who gives direction and depend on the Father through the Holy Spirit who encourages. You know, you're, we're talking about all this stuff and how do we do it? Sure, I want to be part of the living temple, but how? We can listen to our head. We can depend on the Holy Spirit. Another way we can do it is by being built. This scripture is clear that we are not doing the building. We are the stones, right? A builder doesn't say, or a stone doesn't say to the builder, put me over here, right? The builder does it. As we are faithful to walk in unity and listen to his direction, we're walking all together, we're stopping, we're listening. Okay, we're going to move over here all together. Stop, listen. Okay, we're going to move over here all together. As we're faithful to do that in unity, God does the building. The stones don't try to position themselves. The builder does. Philippians 1, very familiar scripture, that he who began the good work in you 
will be faithful to complete it until the day that it's done. He starts it, he does it, he finishes it. He's the master planner. You know what that produces in us? Rest. We can rest in the fact that he is doing the building. Okay. Going back to our key scripture out of this passage, 221. In him, the whole building is joined together. The whole building, all of us together, we're joined together and we rise to become a holy temple in the Lord. If we will walk in unity and build our lives on Christ, model ourselves after him, guess what? We will be his dwelling place. We'll be a monument to his glory. We will inspire and call people to worship. We'll be his temple. He will build us into his temple. He is building something beautiful, unique, and alive that this world has never seen before. I want to be a part of it. Do you? I literally want to be a part of this temple. I want to encourage you this morning, worship team, if you want to come up. This is a high calling to be the temple of God. Would you agree? So I want to challenge us this morning a little bit on these two points, being one people and being one temple. The first thing I want to ask you to examine your heart prayerfully is has any hostility crept in to your heart between you and another believer? Is there a sense of, well, yeah, I did that wrong, but at least I'm closer to God? Or, yeah, God loves you, but a little less because you're kind of messed up. If there's any hostility in your heart, I want to encourage you to seek the Lord to remove that, to remind you we all come to God through Christ in grace. We all come to the same gateway and we can say to one another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. We all need grace desperately. There should be no hostility between us. I want to encourage you this morning, if that's you, to surrender it to the Lord and go and make it right. Go work on unity. The other thing I want to encourage you is to ask yourself if there's a deadness. You realize maybe I'm a, I'm a stone in God's temple, but I'm a little dead inside, right? I'm not really living. I'm not really moving. I'm not really functioning with the people of God. Guess who's an expert on dead things? God himself will put new life in you. It's what he is good at. It's what he does. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're just feeling kind of dead, kind of not really moving, kind of not being built, ask the Lord for new life. He will give it to you. It is his desire more than it's your desire. He wants to build us into a temple. So I'm going to pray, and we're just going to take a few minutes before we close. Um, you can stay in your seat and just pray and talk to the Lord, or you can come up front. Whatever you want to do, 
but just please take this time to search your heart. So Father, we come before you, God. We know that we have been joined together, that we are your children, that we have an inheritance in Christ, that we have inherited the goodness of your person. Father, we're so thankful. And God, we just pray that you would help us to work at unity. Help us to move together. Help us to be there, no hostility. That there would be friendship, kindness in the body of Christ. Joy and peace in working together. Help us, God, because it's work. It's hard. Help us, Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that where there is deadness, where there's loss of hope, where there is the appearance of, of being someone alive, but they're dead inside, Father, I ask that you would bring new life. New life, Lord. Better, better than when they were alive before. Brand new life. Father, stir us. God, we want to be part of your temple. And Jesus, thank you for providing a new way, a new way to meet with you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Lord, the line in that song that says, so that it's you that they see, not I. Lord, that's the, the cry of our heart. That's what we want. God, we want you to be lifted high in our life. We want you to be lifted high in our family. God, you be lifted high in our, our uh, social setting, in our work setting, God. You be lifted high in our school. Wherever it is, you would be lifted high. It wouldn't be us they're seeing. They'd be seeing you through us, God. Jesus, we ask your, your blessing. Ask you would go with us this week. We ask your protection, your guidance, your Lord, that we'd be able to put into practice living together and working together and moving together. Lord, that we'd be able to uh, go from this place built as a living stones and a, a built as a temple, God. Jesus, we just thank you. We thank you that this is something that's already at work in this house, God. We thank you. Pray that it would, it would even increase, go even deeper, God. We just, we love you. We pray your blessing on uh, on the holiday tomorrow, Lord. Let us hang out with fan, friends and family and uh, see you working as a temple even tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in his grace.